I see having four women on the Supreme Court who themselves are very diverse in their backgrounds, in their race, is going to impact not only the court's legitimacy, and by that I mean the public, the, the court is only as believable as the public will put its faith in it. And having a court that more accurately represents the public it serves increases institutional legitimacy, which is really important at a time when a lot of the public opinion surveys show that the Supreme Court isn't held in the highest of regards. So I think it's going to help for the legitimacy of the institution. But I alluded to this earlier, and I want to be really clear here, seeing four women for the first time in such a high profile position is going to change the assumptions people make about women and their place in the workplace, and especially women and minority women in the workplace. Assumptions about what role they should hold, whether or not they can lead, will be completely turned on their heads because we will now see this extraordinary group of very diverse women in the highest leadership role one can have in the legal profession, but I predict that it will impact how women are both personally inspired to see themselves as leaders, but also importantly, how those around them envision them as being leaders in the future, because we will have this cohort of strong women as role models. Welcome to Emphasis Added, a podcast by the Houston Law Review about legal issues, prominent lawyers, and the study and practice of law. I'm Matt Shelf. And I'm Brock Jones. We're your hosts, and thanks for joining us. We're joined here today with University of Houston Law Center professor Renee Kanaki Jefferson to discuss the historic appointment of Justice Katanji Brown Jackson, Diversity in the Judiciary and Judicial Ethics in the Modern Age. Professor Kanaki Jefferson is an internationally renowned expert on professional responsibility and legal ethics with over a decade of experience in higher education leadership. She's an award-winning author of four books and numerous academic articles, having been cited in briefs before the U.S. Supreme Court, prestigious law reviews, and a range of popular media outlets. She's also testified before the U.S. House of Representatives Committee on the Judiciary and has twice testified successfully before the Texas Supreme Court Special Court of Review regarding discipline charges against judges. Professor, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. It's great to be with you. So, Professor, your most recent book, Shortlisted Women in the Shadows of the Supreme Court, was called An Excellent Contribution and Essential for Anyone Who Values Diversity by the Library Journal. Can you tell us a little bit more about the premise of this book? So the book has its origins in a time that is, I guess, a bit of distant history now. It's when President Obama nominated in relatively short order two women to the U.S. Supreme Court, now Justices Elena Kagan and Sonia Sotomayor. And I was noticing in the media a lot of coverage that had absolutely nothing to do with the qualifications of either woman for the court. Lots of fixation on their clothing, on the fact that they were single, they weren't mothers. And of course, the only other women who had ever been on the Supreme Court, Sandra Day O'Connor and Ruth Bader Ginsburg, had both been mothers. And commentary about who would accompany them to fancy Supreme Court dinners and things like that. 
And so a colleague of mine at the time and I decided to not just grumble about this coverage that we thought was really biased and problematic, but actually study it and investigate it. We ended up reading and coding for dozens of variables through an empirical study, thousands of articles written by the New York Times and the Washington Post from the 1970s through the confirmations of Sotomayor and Kagan. And the results of that media study found, perhaps not surprisingly, that in fact the media focuses on gendered aspects of Supreme Court nominees. But what was really interesting in that study was going back and learning some of the history of the Supreme Court that I didn't know. And there was one article in particular that stood out. It was written in 1971. It appeared in the New York Times. It was covering President Richard Nixon's shortlist. There were six names on it, two of them women, Mildred Lilly and Sylvia Bacon. And the New York Times recounted their qualifications. Sylvia Bacon was a judge in Washington, D.C., Mildred Lilly a judge in California. The Times noted that Judge Lilly, in addition to her extraordinary qualifications, had maintained her bathing beauty figure in her 50s and fortunately had no children. So of course that fit into the media study, but that's actually not why it was so interesting to me. I wondered, who's Mildred Lilly? And for that matter, who's Sylvia Bacon? And why is it that I never learned in a high school history class or even in a law and feminism course as a law student about these women? And by the way, how many other women were shortlisted for the US Supreme Court before Sandra Day O'Connor joined it in 1981? And that's how this book started. It set me out exploring archives and presidential libraries across the country, going all the way back to the 1930s. And the answer, by the way, of how many women who were shortlisted before O'Connor is nine, as it turns out, enough to actually fill the whole Supreme Court. We could have had all, all nine women. And that's exactly how the book began, uncovering those stories, recounting those stories. And then we conclude in the book with lessons learned from the lives of these incredible women. So wow. in regards to kind of the, the recent judicial developments with, you know, Justice Jackson's recent appointment and confirmation, how is that kind of the, the media bias that you've seen? How has that kind of been exemplified? Well, the gendered treatment of Supreme Court nominees has certainly continued even after the scope of that media study. It was true in the case of now Justice Barrett. There was lots of focus on her children. Of course, she's not the only Supreme Court justice to have lots of children. In fact, Justice Scalia, for whom she clerked, had even more. Um, we didn't see that same kind of fixation during his confirmation process. And then, of course, with Judge Jackson, soon to be Justice Jackson, we saw, um, I, I think, not only gendered coverage, but uh, racial issues, too. And it was reflected not only, you know, I, I want to be careful here because I'm not I'm not blaming the media. I mean, the media in many ways is simply reporting on what's happening. You know, in the, in the example of Justice Barrett, she was asked by a senator, Senator Kennedy, in her confirmation hearing, who does the laundry in her house? No, no, no male nominee to the court has ever been asked who does the laundry in his house. And we saw similar sorts of bizarre questioning, in, in part from the media. Uh, Carlson, for example, pressed on uh, what Katanji Brown Jackson's LSAT score was, which I mean, that's sort of like for people who do 
you know, like the New York Times word puzzle, the wordle that's sort of like asking that in terms of relevance and bearing on her ability to be a Supreme Court justice. And obviously she must have had a very good LSAT score for getting into the law school she did and having the extraordinary career she's had. Um, and then we, we also saw in her confirmation hearings um, uh, a lot of questioning and scrutiny that had nothing to do with her qualifications for the court. Uh, to me, seemed not only um, drawn from um, bias and prejudice against her, uh, and, but also because I think some of the senators were using the moment in the spotlight as an opportunity to begin making their own campaign trail pledges and promises rather than using that time for what it was supposed to be, which is really vetting and ascertaining the qualifications of a Supreme Court justice. I agree. And I think we're going to come back to a couple of the points that you just made a little bit later in the episode, especially about kind of the rationale behind some of the lines of questioning that she faced. So uh, before that, earlier this month, uh, we've alluded to it uh, strongly now, but the Senate confirmed Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson to the Supreme Court. Um, she will be the Supreme Court's first black female justice when she takes over for Justice Breyer this summer. So what was your initial reaction uh, upon hearing the news of Judge Jackson's confirmation? And why, well, guess, what do you think this progress means for, for women and the legal profession as a whole? So a few layers to this, because the, the first news really was Biden's promise to put a black woman on the Supreme Court. And he got a lot of pushback for that, as, as if somehow that was a, a form of affirmative action or the like. But really, history and what I've studied in my research defeats any claim like that. First of all, black women have been as qualified as white women to join the Supreme Court. In fact, for as long as women were allowed to join the Supreme Court, so going back to the early 1980s, African-American women were shortlisted. One of the women in my study, Amalia Kearse, is a judge who sits in senior status still today on the Second Circuit Court of Appeals. She was incredibly accomplished, the first African-American female law partner in a Manhattan firm. She was the first African-American woman to sit on a federal court of appeals. As I said, the Second Circuit, she was appointed by President Carter. And then she was shortlisted for the Supreme Court by President Reagan. That's notable there, right? Presidents from both parties found her to be sufficiently qualified. And she would be shortlisted yet another time by Reagan. So Reagan, just like Biden, campaigns on a promise to deliver a particular kind of diversity to the court. And Reagan campaigned on the promise to put a woman on the court, which he did. He had multiple vacancies. He could have given us more than one woman. And in fact, Amalia Kearse was shortlisted for the seat that would go to Justice Kennedy. She found her name floated yet again when Clarence Thomas's confirmation looked like it might not go through under the Bush presidency. And then she was actually shortlisted an additional time by President Clinton for Justice Breyer's seat, the very seat that will now finally go to an African-American female Supreme Court justice. And so part of my reaction was just um, really being impressed that Biden recognized that this was a long time coming, that it was an oversight and something that needed to happen for our Supreme Court. And we can talk more about why it's important for the Supreme Court to better reflect the diversity of the public it serves. But let me just wrap up to your initial question here on my reaction, then of course, having her named and then confirmed, I mean, my reaction was 
joy, feeling incredibly optimistic at a time where there are other aspects of women's rights and minority rights in this country that seem under fire and in jeopardy to at least have this marker of progress. I mean, it gives me chills even now talking about it. It's an extraordinary moment. And I think that she will uh, impact not just the court and the decision-making that happens on the Supreme Court, but she will really impact the way the nation perceives, not just who can be a, a justice on the court, but who can rise to the highest level in, in any area of professional life. She will be setting that standard in a new way for us as we move forward. Absolutely. We also talked a little bit about her confirmation hearing seems to have followed some recent trends. Uh, it was incredibly partisan. But most of, I felt, the hardball questions that she faced related to um, some of her previous rulings and really, like you said, not necessarily um, about her background or her qualifications as a judge. So could you tell us a little bit about her background um, and I guess what made it so hard to attack? Yeah, so she brings a lot more diversity than just the fact that she will be our first African-American female justice on the Supreme Court. She has a, a different childhood upbringing experiences that she brings to the court than most of the justices. Most of the Supreme Court justices, with the exception of Justice Barrett, grew up either in the New York or Washington, D.C. area. So, And, and then almost all of them went to similar law schools. And, and on, on that, uh, she is... Justice, Judge Justice Jackson is noticeably less diverse, right? Because she went to Harvard. Uh, the diversity there comes uh, from Justice right. Barrett having gone to Notre Dame. <laughs> but uh, with respect to Katanji Brown Jackson's background, she will be the only Supreme Court justice with significant work as a public defender, work on the Sentencing Commission. And so she will be bringing that to bear in decisions that the court is facing. And then I was really struck by the way she responded to the constant pressing about what her judicial philosophy is. And I, I believe that her many, many years as a district court judge and then the year or so of service on the DC Circuit Court of Appeals is also important background. She has more time as a judge than several of the currently sit sitting justices combined did when they joined the Supreme Court. And over that time, as she has very eloquently articulated, she has developed her approach to judicial decision making. She didn't call it a philosophy, but it's the way she approaches a case. And I found that to be very compelling and I think will be a model that sets the standard for how judges go forward in the future when they are evaluating cases. So also kind of in terms of diversity, this is, like you said, the first time there's four out of nine justices that will be female. Obviously, Judge Justice Jackson will not, you know, tip the partisan balance of the court at the moment while she's replacing Justice Breyer. Do you think that the balance of women is going to change things related to uh, female jurisprudence at all? So that's a great question. On the one hand, you're right. It's likely on many issues to be a 6-3 divided court still, where we will actually see the women parting ways on issues that people might say are women's issues or women's rights. Although I, you know, when we're talking about women's issues and women's rights, they're really everyone's or they're, they're human mm -hmm. issues and human rights. 
So to be sure, on some of the most partisan divided issues of the day, we are likely to see three women regularly in dissent, Justices Kagan, Sotomayor, and, and Jackson. And let me just sort of drop a footnote there. Just because they're going to be in dissent doesn't mean those dissents won't have influence. I mean, for most of Clarence Thomas's time on the court, he was writing dissents, and now we have a court that is increasingly shifting toward his view. So the, the, um, there's a longevity to Supreme Court jurisprudence, and the importance of what is penned in the dissent can often later guide a path to becoming a majority opinion. Beyond, though, just how cases are decided in this, in this immediate term with the court, the way it will be comprised when she joins it, I see having four women on the Supreme Court who themselves are very diverse in their backgrounds, in their race, is going to impact not only the court's legitimacy, and by that I mean the public, the, the, the court is only as believable as the public will put its faith in it. And having a court that more accurately represents the public it serves increases institutional legitimacy, which is really important at a time when a lot of the public opinion surveys show that the Supreme Court isn't held in the highest of regards. So I think it's going to help for the legitimacy of the institution. But I alluded to this earlier, and I wanna be really clear here, Seeing four women for the first time in such a high-profile position is going to change the assumptions people make about women and their place in the workplace, and especially women and minority women in the workplace. Assumptions about what role they should hold, whether or not they can lead, will be completely turned on their heads because we will now see this extraordinary group of very diverse women in the highest leadership role one can have in the legal profession, but I predict that it will impact how women are both personally inspired to see themselves as leaders, but also importantly, how those around them envision them as being leaders in the future, because we will have this cohort of strong women as role models. Yeah, that is so important. And I completely agree. Uh, you you mentioned this kind of potential I, you know, we all see it as a voting block, right, between um, Sotomayor, Kagan, um, and now Jackson. But also the questions that now Justice Jackson received about her quote-unquote judicial philosophy. She actually surprised, I think, a lot of people, uh, myself included, with her answers to some of those questions um, when she said that she didn't believe um, in the concept of a living constitution. And the way she phrased her answer kind of sounded very much like she was a, a pure textualist almost, which uh, led some folks to question whether or not there would be a divide between her um, and Kagan and Sotomayor. What would it look like for a, a justice appointed by a Democratic president um, to be more of a textualist than a, a purposivist, if that's a word? Or do you really think that that'll impact the way she, she holds? So I have a few reactions to this. Um, you know, the first is, you know, I, I hear what you're saying. And I think that, uh, you know, it would be pretty interesting if you could take her her script, the answers she was giving when she talked about how, you know, the first thing she looks at is the text. And, and she talked a lot about staying in her lane as a judge and 
um, how she used those judicial tools to really um, rule quite narrowly, as narrowly as possible, you know, truly adhering to your point to the text. If we could, you know, take that script and uh, have it read by um, a, a, a white man who everyone assumed, you know, was uh, supported by Republicans um, saying the very same words. I, I you know, I, I think that, um, she, you know, that individual wouldn't have gotten the same kinds of challenges and pushback that she was getting. It was really shocking to me that she was getting such pushback that somehow that that wasn't an acceptable approach to judicial decision making from the people who were questioning her. Uh, now, in terms of a, a justice deciding cases differently than what a president expects based on the appointment, well, um, that has happened in the past. In most recent history, Justice Souter was probably one of the more surprising in terms of not deciding cases necessarily the way uh, Republicans expected that he would. And I would just say that it's it's one of the things about that, of course, all federal appointments are lifetime appointments, but as a district court judge and even as on, a judge on the Court of Appeals, one is always having to think about the precedent that they are limited by and the possibility of having their decision overturned. And on the Supreme Court, that is, is less of a consideration. So it's impossible to predict how over time a justice might evolve in their de decision making. And so I think it's, um, you know, maybe a little too soon to tell uh, where she will align always on certain issues. I, but I, I do believe her to be very authentic and genuine when she described the way she approaches a case and applies the law to the facts. And that to me is exactly what we want a judge to do. I'll give you an example going back to shortlisted. So this, this cohort of nine women who were considered by presidents going all the way back to the 1930s, which is quite extraordinary. Can you can imagine having a justice on the Supreme Court, a female justice in 1937. That would have you know, been amazing for many reasons. We could talk more about that. But the example I want to give you, so this, this group of women couldn't have been more different. Some of them were feminists and championed for women's rights, for, for the right to vote. In fact, the first woman that was ever shortlisted by a president, her name was Florence Allen, she was first on the Ohio Supreme Court and then went to the Sixth Circuit Federal Court of Appeals. She got to the Ohio Supreme Court because she championed for women to get them the right to vote and then turned around and asked them for their vote. So, um, but other women in the study were quite opposite, did not support the, the ERA, the Equal Rights Amendment. And one in particular, Susie Sharp, she was the first female justice on the North Carolina Supreme Court and the first elected chief justice of any state Supreme Court. And she was uh, vocally against the ERA. She would tell women that she did not believe you could have both being a mother and a professional life. You had to choose one or the other. And she was also an avowed racist. But when she was on the bench as a judge, she set aside those personal beliefs and she would apply the law to the facts. So even though her personal beliefs were completely offensive to me in many ways, um, I can admire the way she functioned as a justice. In fact, she authored the first opinion that would desegregate 
golf courses in North Carolina. And that's the kind of judge that I would want to be in front of if I was, you know, in, in a situation that, that required me to be before the court. Someone who can set aside their personal beliefs, even their personal philosophy, and actually apply the facts of the case to the law. I think that's the kind of judge that Katanji Brown Jackson will be too. Um, although uh, I would also say that I think um, my personal beliefs are more in alignment with hers than uh, they were with Susie Sharp. It's kind of what the judicial branch is all about, right? Maintaining that separation from the elected bodies. And it's awesome that she's going to represent that. A lot of the folks that we're talking about right now are court of appeals judges or justices, um, you know, district court judges or justices. Some of the questions that Judge Jackson got related to kind of her very brief stint on the Court of Appeals now, uh, I guess maybe it's just uh, a little over a year. Is there a precedent for a justice serving such a short period of time on the Court of Appeals? And if there's not, how important do you think the length of time um, that she's spent at an appellate court level is? So there's no requirement at all that a Supreme Court justice have any experience as a judge or even that they have to be a lawyer for that matter. And in the past, Supreme Court justices were governors, for example, or even on the current bench, Elena Kagan, she never served as a judge before she became a Supreme Court justice. She was a law professor and then she worked in the Clinton administration under Obama. She was appointed a solicitor general. So she had argued cases in front of the Supreme Court, but the first time she ever argued a case was in that role. And she did not serve in it for very long before she was then appointed to the Supreme Court. And so I don't think it's problematic at all that uh, Jackson was only in the circuit court role for about a year. It's wonderful that she has that experience. It increasingly is a path that the Supreme Court justices take to get to the Supreme Court. The DC Circuit Court of Appeals is sort of known as a, a feeder court, if you will. Some would say that it's the most prestigious appellate court in the land, although I don't know, in Texas, the Fifth Circuit would probably um, <laughs> rival it, right? Um, so, you know, does is that important? Uh, I think it's important for some of the justices to have that experience, but I would argue that it's equally important to have more diversity than we currently see in the background and experience of our Supreme Court justices. Serving on a, uh, you know, at the appellate court level, the kinds of cases that you're seeing are not necessarily representative of everyday Americans' lives. And so I look at, for example, O'Connor. So when Sandra Day O'Connor was appointed by Reagan in 1981, she brought a little bit of experience as a state judge, and she also had been a legislator. And that gave her another really unique perspective and background to bring to the court because not only did she have the experience of working in the legislature, but you have to get elected. And that requires talking to the public and meeting citizens and finding out what concerns are. And so I would like to see more diversity on the Supreme Court, not just in terms of gender and race, which is super, super important, don't get me wrong. And we have work to do in that regard. I mean, we have four women, it's true, but really, 
for the court to reflect the public it serves, we should have five. And of course, there are uh, many races that have yet to be represented on the Supreme Court. So we have more work to do there too. Mm -hmm. But I also think it's really important to consider a diversity in the background experience that one has developed that leads them to that ultimate appointment. Awesome. Well, I think it's time to get into some of the the dirty parts of the confirmation hearing. So it sounds like, you know, you've said Justice Jackson was, you know, she's not the first to, to lack. Well, actually, she, maybe she doesn't really lack the appellate court experience at all, right? Um, she's certainly not the first woman on a short list. Uh, a lot of the questions that she was getting, people were up in arms about, I guess, some of her qualifications, but they don't really seem that out of the ordinary. No, if, if anything, quite the opposite. She's arguably the most qualified justice on the bench right now if we're looking at you know numbers of years as a judge and where she went to school and having the background as a public defender and the sentencing commission and having bipartisan support and um you know incredible incredible references and in, in reviews and so yeah but if anything she's the most qualified, uh, I don't know about ever, but maybe even ever. So, so as the most qualified, maybe even ever, and we'll, we'll put that in a quote, that'll go on the Instagram. Uh, she was confirmed by this 53-47 vote that for a time looked like it could be 50-50 with, you know, a tie break from the VP. That's on, on, almost exactly the same margin as I think um, Justice Barrett was confirmed by. Um, it's almost on the nose for Justice Kavanaugh. I guess, one, how important were those votes from from Collins and and Mitt Romney um, and Lisa Murkowski? To me, it just it it shows just how partisan this process is, that there weren't more Republican votes for Jackson. They obviously were not voting about whether or not she was qualified to be a Supreme Court justice. And that, to me, is a real tragedy, that this process is no longer about that. And if you even look back to O'Connor and Scalia, I mean, overwhelmingly unanimous. Uh, and th those are instances where partisanship was not on the table. But in fact, the question was, is this person qualified to have a lifetime appointment on the Supreme Court? even if I don't agree with their judicial approach or philosophy, or I don't agree with the party that happened to get the appointment. And that's, that is no longer where we are. And we have seen that for sure in this most recent vote, but to your point, also in the votes for the other recent justices. Now, you know, is it important to have some bipartisan support? A absolutely. Although at the end of the day, what's important is that she's confirmed. And so the, the final numbers at the end of the day don't matter as long as there were enough for her to, in fact, have her confirmation. But I do think that it's, um, it's a strange time that we are in. And it's why the American public, I hope, it, it's hard to get the public to care about the Supreme Court and who is on it. It's hard to make that a, a, an issue that's going to get people out to vote, especially when we think about the lower courts too, the Court of Appeals and District Courts. But those appointments matter. They matter so much. And we are now in a world where 
those appointments will turn based on who controls the Senate. That is not the world of the past. To be sure, appointments have always been partisan and there's been all kinds of behind the scenes maneuvering and we can, you know, but we are now in a world where who controls the Senate is going to absolutely control whether or not a judge can be ultimately appointed or confirmed. And I, I just want to say one more thing about we're focusing a lot on the Supreme Court. And that's that's really important. But equally important is who comprises the, the lower courts too, the district courts and the court court of appeals. And one president in, in my study who most people, when I, I talk about the project, I, I will usually say, like, what, what president do you think was the first to put a woman on the court? And, you know, some people will guess Reagan because it was O'Connor, right? That's the, the obvious one. And often people will say Carter. Of course, he was president right before Reagan. And that's because Carter really devoted a lot of his presidency to advancing women in a number of ways. He didn't put a woman on the Supreme Court because he didn't have a vacancy. But what he did do was single-handedly changed the face of the federal judiciary, literally. I mean, he put more women into the lower federal courts than all presidents combined before him. Wow. And that kind of effort is going to be really important going forward. We saw Trump doing something very similar. Biden is working hard on the lower courts as well. And I will just conclude this little bit with a couple more words about Carter and his history. It's a history worth telling because it's long forgotten. It's an important part of his legacy, though. So how did he change the judiciary in the way he did? And he changed the process for how he how judges were selected. He created commissions around the country. The commissions were about a dozen. They had to be diverse themselves in makeup, and they were charged with vetting diverse candidates. And importantly, one of the qualifications in order to get your recommendation to be appointed to a federal court applicants had to demonstrate a commitment to diversity. And so by changing that process, he was able to increase the pool and also elevate many extraordinary women and minorities, including, we can go back to Judge Amalia Kearse, the first black woman to sit on a federal court of appeals. She was on one of those commissions initially, and then she was selected by a commission for the second circuit. And but for Carter's structural change that was very intentional and very deliberate. I, I doubt that she would have been selected at the time. It might have been many more years before a black woman was put on the Federal Court of Appeals. And we might be even further away from this historic moment that we're at now. Because of course, and I love that Jackson does this. I mean, she she knows that she stands on the shoulders of the women who went before her. In fact, she talks a lot about Constance Baker Motley, a name that hasn't come up yet. She was the first black woman on a federal district court. And I love this part of the story. They share the same birthday. Right. And those early women who opened up the professional life in, in courthouses to women and to minority women are the reason why we're able to celebrate this year together the ascension of Ketanji Brown Jackson to the U.S. Supreme Court. That's awesome. That's incredible. Something that kind of just stood out to me in what you're saying was really didn't used to be the situation where the control of the Senate basically dictated the confirmation and appointment of the current justices and lower federal court judges. Could you speak on what has been the trend necessarily that created that? So the politicization of the Supreme Court appointments in 
in my research, I can pinpoint a few different times where you see a turning point. One of them, to be sure, was when Reagan campaigned on the promise to put a woman on the court. He was the first presidential candidate to so vocally and actively campaign on a Supreme Court nominee and then, of course, deliver. And the reason why he did that is because you now know Carter's history and putting all these women on federal courts. Reagan, by the way, had been governor of California, where he basically put no women into the state courts. And so he uh, was not known to be supportive of the Equal Rights Amendment. He had to do something. So he very much used campaigning for a woman on the court as a political lever to get the votes of women. But he wasn't the first to do that. We can go back to another real, to me, marker in time where we can point to a tangible moment in history that I think has led to the increased politicization of the court was during Nixon's presidency. And we opened up talking about the origins of this book. And I described the article from 1971 in the New York Times where Nixon's shortlist was reported. Now, to be sure, that was extraordinary for a few reasons. It's the first time we found a, a media reporting of a shortlist before a name was announced. So that was a pretty big deal. I mean, in this world now where we had Trump with his not so short shortlist, on whitehouse.gov, you know, ever-growing list, we forget that it used to be you wouldn't hear anything about the shortlist at all, just, you know, the, the names of, of who was going to get the appointment. So it was extraordinary for that reason. And then also that there were two women on it. Meanwhile, I have listened to the Oval Office tapes, and Nixon would say things behind the scenes like, I don't even think women should be allowed to vote. Oh. So he... <laughs> Clearly, yeah, he clearly had no intention of putting either of those women on the Supreme Court, but he wanted the votes of women. And he knew, I mean, this is the, you know, um, be, you know beginning of a, a real push and effort in women's rights in the early 70s. He had to give them something in order to earn their vote. And so the political calculation was to be able to say, well, we considered women for the Supreme Court. And, and in fact, that's exactly what he did. So he ultimately put... Uh, justices, well, would go on to be Chief Justice Rehnquist and Justice Powell to fill two vacancies that he faced at that time. You know, both or either could have gone to a woman. Uh, but then he later literally turned around and when he was campaigning for re-election, gave a speech to a women's group and said, look, at least we considered women this time. Um, so that to me is a real marker of starting to use Supreme Court appointments for political votes. And then in terms of seeing the confirmation process politicized, I think a real marker for that was certainly in the confirmation proceedings for Judge Bork, which failed. And famously now he's been called being Borked, right? Um, <laughs> and he, I think, I think that's a moment in time where um, there's still resentment today from Republicans that that happened. Um, and then I guess the last thing I will say about why we see the hearing process itself so politicized is the fact that it's televised. And it's a moment where it's now live television, where everyone's watching at the same time. And in this world of social media and, you know, and, and, uh, 
media on demand and and trying to get everyone's attention at the same time that really only happens in a moment of national crisis and emergency or in a moment like a supreme court nomination and so i think that we were seeing the senators using that moment where they knew they had attention in real time of a significant portion of the country and they were using it for political gain so you would say, I guess, not to put words in your mouth, but Justice Jackson faced some questions about uh, critical race theory. She faced some questions about her lack of harsh sentencing. I don't know that that's even an appropriate way to phrase that. But uh, in, in, alleged lack of, right? Yeah, even though it's in line with what our, all other judges uh, and, do. And that she sat on the sentencing commission, so I think she probably understands the sentencing rules, right? Yeah. Uh, but but so... <laughs> So those kind of questions that almost take you by surprise, well, they're starting to take us by surprise less and less um, with their frequency. But is that just because the senators know that the cameras are rolling and somebody back home is super excited to hear about critical race theory? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that has to be, um, you know, it was literally the the um, the buzzwords that we are seeing that are um, being used without really understanding even what they, they mean. Um, and so, yeah, that was on display sort of, uh, you know, I want to say surprisingly, but actually not surprisingly at this point, but it was very much on display uh, in, in her hearings. And I think, you know, when we were talking earlier about the kind of judge she's going to be or kind of justice she's going to be, and it was not lost on me that even in the midst of being yelled at and, you know, at one point a senator, you know, stormed off, you know, sort of in this feigned disgust. She was calm. She was patient. She remained composed. That to me was in uh, such contrast to, for example, the Kavanaugh hearings where we did not see that same kind of composure right. from now Justice Kavanaugh. And that to me tells us the the kind of justice she is going to be where she will remain cool under fire she's not going to be tripped up by theatrics or questions these weren't even trick questions but just sort of really i mean it was, it was bullying she, she's um you know not going to be moved by that and i think that's why i i've been reading a lot of the polls say that she's the like the most popular Supreme Court nominee ever. And I think the nation saw that, you know, uh, they, they they saw what was happening for what it was, and they saw her rise above it and were inspired by it. You know, that's something we've already seen, too, because she already agreed to uh, recuse herself from the affirmative action cases regarding her position on the Harvard Board of Overseers. But um, in the alternative, we've seen calls for Justice Thomas to recuse himself in some cases related to January 6th and the Capitol attacks due to his wife's proximity to the Trump administration as well as her kind of role as a conservative political activist. And so could you kind of explain to us how Supreme Court judicial ethical conduct uh, is bound by their indiscretion and whether it is? So the U.S. Supreme Court is the only judicial body that does not have a code of ethics that applies to it specifically. All of the state courts do and the lower federal courts do. They have a, a code of, of judicial ethics that are mostly based on a, a code that's promulgated by the American Bar Association that judges follow. In theory, Supreme Court justices are supposed to follow a federal law that does require recusal 
essentially in situations where their impartiality may be questioned. But in practice, there's no one to enforce that. For a justice to decide to recuse, that has to be on her her own to, to decide to do it. And the decision to recuse or not is, is unreviewable by anyone else. There's no process for other members of the US Supreme Court to come in and say, oh, actually you should have recused, or no, you don't need to. Some, some courts do that, but not, not the Supreme Court. And so in the case of Jackson saying that she's already going to recuse on matters involving Harvard, that's not surprising because she also has recused as a judge in lower courts. And so maybe that's why she's following that, that practice now and you know able to say now that that's what she's going to do going forward. As for Justice Thomas, I, I doubt that he will recuse, even though there have been significant questions about his wife's involvement, and when I say recuse, recuse from cases that in, involve the January 6th insurrection, uh, election challenges, and that sort of thing, to the extent they come before the court. I doubt he will. Um, should he? I, I say yes, but um, ultimately it's up to the individual member on the Supreme Court. And in terms of what other justices have or haven't done, I can tell you that when Justice Kagan joined the Supreme Court. If there was a case that she had worked on as a Solicitor General, she recused from those cases. One of the most famous recusal cases involved a, a request that Scalia recuse from a case involving then Vice President Cheney. And that was based on the fact that the two of them had a, a friendship, a pretty public friendship. They had gone duck hunting together. The justice had ridden on the vice president's official plane. Um, and part of why that case got so much attention, uh, first of all, Scalia declined to recuse, but he actually wrote an opinion about why he did. And this is a point worth noting. Not only do the justices get to decide themselves whether or not they're going to recuse, but they don't have to offer any explanation. And so it's pretty rare when a justice does. Uh, Scalia's opinion gives us some insight in, in, in his view. He felt that there was no uh, favor being done for Dick Cheney, so he didn't need to recuse. So, so maybe if there had been a stronger um, element of, of favor for him, then he, he would have. We don't know. But it's equally problematic, not only that we don't have a clear ethics code for the Supreme Court, but also that there isn't over time a body of decisions that the justices can look to as a measure when they want to evaluate themselves to say, oh, in this instance, Justice A did recuse, and my situation is like that, so I should. Or in this instance, Justice B didn't recuse, and so my situation is like that, and, and so I don't need to. We don't even have that kind of guidance that we could look to, that an advocate could look to in asking a justice to recuse, or in fact, that a justice herself could look to in making that evaluation. And so I've been an advocate for the Supreme Court adopting a code of ethics. It's something that Chief Justice Roberts has sort of um, alluded to, maybe there would be some, you know, sort of consideration of Justice Kagan has been a little bit more vocal about it. Um, the last thing I will say, because uh, of course there's always a counter argument, so you know, why isn't there a code of ethics? And the, the argument goes that, uh, at least in terms of why hasn't, uh, for example, Congress imposed or forced this, 
it, the argument is that it's a separation of powers issue, right? So we um, want to allow the judiciary to be separate. But I, I find that hollow because I think that the Supreme Court could, in fact, adopt its own code of ethics that it would uh, figure out how to apply to itself. And that would certainly be an improvement over what we have now. Yeah, hopefully with some of the bipartisan pressures coming in from that, we'll see if the judiciary will take that step. Yeah, it's like the one thing Congress can agree on right now. <laughs> exactly. um, I, I have gone to testify in front of the House of Representatives and and it was interesting because, you know, everything seems so contentious these days. But as it turns out, the Republicans and the Democrats can agree when it comes to judicial ethics that the judges should be uh, perhaps regulated in certain ways that involve financial disclosure of judges. So on that issue in particular, there seemed to be bipartisan support. So, yeah, we'll see, though, um, what the judiciary does with that. Good deal. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Professor Renee Kanaki-Jefferson. Thanks for listening. Emphasis Added is a podcast by the Houston Law Review. If you like what you saw, check us out on YouTube or your favorite podcast app. Follow us on Instagram at Emphasis Added Pod and check out the Law Review at HoustonLawReview.org.